0: Good morning, everybody. We are in the book of Hebrews. We've been in this series uh, now for a number of weeks. We've been walking through the book of Hebrews, which is what we do at our church, walk through books of the Bible so that you can have a better understanding of the author's original intent, not just what we're telling you, but what does this really say. Um, And we've been going through that week by week. Um, If you remember, the, uh, the, the whole title series is Consider Jesus, the writer of Hebrews. I say it every week, but I want you guys to remember that the writer of Hebrews is trying to remind us and trying to remind the people he's writing to, to consider Jesus, because we forget that. We forget Jesus, we forget to think about him first, right? We put something else first, we put ourselves first, we can put others first, our kids first, our job first, so many other things we can put in front of our relationship with Christ and a relationship with the God of the universe, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, a heavenly family that we're invited into by God through his son Jesus. And so the writer of Hebrews, remember, is writing to a bunch of Old Testament Hebrews. They're Israelites that have decided that Jesus is the actual Messiah of the Old Testament. They've committed their life to that. They've surrendered their life to that. But now there are some that are falling away. They're going back to the way of the law in the Old Testament, because they don't want to face persecution. They don't want to face out being an outcast among their family or among their peers or the people that they want to get excited. Hey, he's the Messiah, and now they're being persecuted by the Romans, by Jews, by others, as these new Christians that are living a very different life than what the people around them are living. And so the writer of Hebrews is saying, hey, you got to keep considering Jesus. It's not just a one-time thing that, yes, you are once saved. You, are, you, you invite Christ to come in. The Bible calls it born again, Jesus said. That's the word Jesus used. You are born again at one point. But, hey, remember to con- keep considering Jesus because he has a heavenly calling for us. You know, most of you are at IU or you're going to school or you've been through school or maybe you've learned to trade. You've, you've, you have a calling on your life. Maybe you're called as a husband or a parent father, mother, a child. There are different callings that we have on our life, but the ultimate calling is to remember that we have a heavenly calling, that after this life, there's something else. It's only been, if you don't know this, it's only been in the last several decades that atheism has even been a belief system around the world. For all of human history, up until the last several decades, And even atheism to this point is one of the minor views of the world. There aren't really that many people who are actually atheists. Most are agnostic if you have a conversation with them, right? They're not true atheists because true atheism is depressing. It's just live for you, live whatever you want, and in the end you die and so what? It doesn't create relationships. It doesn't create love. It doesn't create, even though they try, there's not a greater motivation except for yourself. The Bible says there's a heavenly calling and that's why Jesus came from heaven to earth. And if you remember the first 10 chapters of Hebrews, 10 and a half, the author of Hebrews is laying out the case that Jesus really is who he said he was. He he goes back to the Old Testament, he uses verse after verse after verse, he goes through it all and he says, look, you have got to consider that Jesus really is who he says he is, and if he really is the God of the universe, then he's worthy of your life. And in chapter 10, you see a pivot, and you see him start to talk about, let us, and we looked at this two weeks ago, he says, let us draw near to God, because most people thought, well, God's far off, he's distant. You know, and I got I to gotta be careful to do all the right things because I don't want to be near him. I want to go to him someday. I'm going to have to face him someday. But I hope that I've done enough that I can get into heaven. And that's not what the Bible teaches. That's the opposite of what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches you can't do enough good work to outweigh your bad work. You can't do enough to, to kind of balance the scales because the scales are too far gone. The Bible says you actually have a spiritual cancer that you can't heal. It's not healable. It's terminal. And only God can heal it. And in the Old Testament, the writer of Hebrews said everyone in the Old Testament, we saw that in chapter chapter 11, he says, everyone in the Old Testament drew near, they held on to the hope that God would save them, that he would send a Messiah, that somehow he would save their soul, and then they were concerned for one another. That has been the pattern of God from the beginning of time to the end of time. And he says, these people trusted God by faith, and faith... Is the reality of what is hoped for, holding on to that hope, the proof of what's not seen. For our ancestors won God's approval by it. And we looked at that last week. We looked at the whole world is actually built on faith. You can't get around the economy of faith, right? You can go back and listen to the podcast we talked about simply. You didn't check that chair before you sat down in it. You didn't look to see you just assume that if we put out chairs, we weren't trying to trick you. And that's, that's a lot of trust when you know who sets up our chairs. It's our youth pastor. Okay, just saying. So, and if you know him, you know he's a little ornery. So, you know, you, you really trusted God today. Just saying. Now, Brian's a great guy. But I'm just saying, the world is built by faith. The question is, what do we place our faith in? The author of Hebrews is saying, you've got to place it in Jesus. Well, Here's where we're at this week. Let us, part two. <laughs> part two. Okay? Here's why. In the, in the book of Hebrews, the term let us is used twelve times. Twelve times the writer of Hebrews is making a case for something, and then he says, okay, based on what I just told you, based on, on this information that we that this should be true. Now let us do this. You see, the Bible's always careful not to ask us to do things without telling us what we need to believe before we do it. See, that's very different. Most religions in the world say, do these things, right? Like, do this, do this, be a good person, and in the end, hopefully you may. The Bible's like, no, there are things you need to believe because you don't even have the power to be able to do the things that God asks of you. You need him to come into your life. And so in this part two, we're going to look at in chapter 12, he says not only before where he said, let us draw near to God, let us hold on to a hope in a world that's hopeless, let us look to be concerned for others so we lead others to draw near to God so that we can lead others to have hope beyond the mess they're in and the mess of our world. He says, let us lay aside, let us run with endurance, and let us hold on to grace. And that's what we're going to look at this morning, deeply. And we're going to consider Jesus together. And I hope if you've never considered Jesus before, that today would be the day that you say, okay, I'm going to consider this. I'm going to, I'm going to stop arguing, and I'm just going to listen for a minute. And I'm going to see if this, if this Jesus really is who he says he is. And you know what? You're going to need help. You're going to need help from other people to be able to do these three things, which we'll see this morning. So Hebrews 11.39, we'll go back a, a verse, a two verses. At the end of chapter 11, he's talking about all the great people of faith. He's laid out his case for why we should place our faith in Jesus instead of some other religion or some other thing. And then he says, all these, all those people in the past, all these people, all those circumstances, they were approved, they gained approval through their faith. But they did not receive what was promised. And you see the list of people that they lived by faith, but many of them were killed, they were martyred. Even the ones that had a decent life didn't receive the best life, because the best life is still yet to come. It's a heavenly calling, the author of Hebrews is talking about. And he says, since God has provided something better for us, so that they would not be made perfect without us. And I want to go back and revisit this, because I think it's important. Because here's the deal. We have to understand that we are a part of helping the people before us, okay, be made perfect. Now, the definition of perfect, I learned this week as I was studying, the definition of perfect biblically is not necessarily how we would see perfect. We see perfect as like they almost become their own God. In our culture, when something's perfect, it becomes its own like perfect thing. It's it's like a deity. It's an idol. It's, It's perfect. That's not really what this means. This, this word and what he's talking about here is the idea of completeness or wholeness. Kind of a, it's a worthiness, a worth it, if that makes sense. And so what he's saying is since God has provided Jesus to be a better symbol to us of what all the Old Testament and all the scriptures were about, when we believe in Jesus, all the people in heaven, all those that have had faith before us are cheering They are excited and they realize that God is perfecting their work more and more through us, that it was worth it. You see this in today's culture, when a parent has poured into the life of their child, right? And the child takes responsibility and holds on to the hope that their parents gave them, like is thankful, is a grateful person, is a person who serves others. It's like you come to the end of your life as a a parent, you're like, okay, I can die now. Like, like I can go on now because the, the generation behind me is, is, is holding on to what they were taught. They're, they're holding on to something better than I was. And every parent wants their kids to be quote unquote better than they were. Every generation typically wants it to be better. In heaven it works that way. That we are actually perfecting the mission of God and telling the people of the, of, of the past Your life was worth it. And all of heaven and those people in heaven, God is still making them whole. He's still blessing them. There's still a sense of, wow, look, another person trusted in Jesus who was a Gentile. They weren't Jewish. That means they were grafted into Abraham and they look at Abraham and said, Abraham, you had another great, 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 great grandchild today and another one and another one. And Abraham's like, this is awesome. That's what we're a part of, the Bible says. That's huge. That's no small thing. And that's why he goes on in chapter 12 and he says, therefore. Whenever you see a therefore in scripture, it's there for a reason. You have to ask the question, what's it there for? He's laid out his case for faith. He's laid out his case for Jesus. He said, let us do these things, All right? He's laid it out and he says, therefore, since we have such a large cloud of witnesses, a cloud of witnesses, people that, are, that have gone before us, heavenly people that have trusted in, in God, pe- the cloud of witness surrounding us, let us lay aside every weight and the sin that so easily ensnares us and let us run with endurance the race that lies before us, keeping our eyes on Jesus, the source and perfecter of our faith, who, look at this, for the joy that lay before him, endured a cross and despised the shame, and is set down at the right hand of God's throne. Jesus left heaven itself. He left the witnesses. He left heaven itself to come down to earth to be put in a bodily form so that he would be the perfect whole sacrifice that you and I deserve to be taken, our life deserves to be taken. He died in our place, and it says it was his joy to do it. It was his joy to fulfill all of what was promised in the Old Testament. It was his joy to finally complete what was said in the very beginning of Genesis, it was his joy to say, now it's time I get to do this. I get to do what I've, been, what, what I've always been there to do, what I committed to do when we created the world. Because when Father, Son, and Spirit decided to create the world, they decided on everything. Jesus at that point said, I will die for these people. I will give my life. That's what he decided. And it said it was the joy that lay before him that motivated him to go to the cross and to stay on the cross, Because I don't know about you, when I'm going through suffering, I don't want to stay in it. I want out of it as quickly as possible. And Jesus left heaven itself to be born in a manger and to be born poor, which we're going to celebrate that idea in a month. He did all of that because he understood that there was heaven giving praise and joy and that people here, you and I, would receive praise and joy from the Father if we believe in him. He wanted us to fully consider who he was and who the Father was through his life. That's the message that this author is trying to lay out for us. This week, I went to a pastor's retreat on Monday and Tuesday. It was real quick. It was about 30 hours at a camp that we partner with nearby. And it was hard for me to kind of settle myself down. I've been dealing with some health issues and other things, and so there's just been some Issues I've been going through and so I'm trying to like calm myself down and I go back on the first day I'm sitting on the back deck just trying to think and read my Bible and pray and um, and then The next day I finally through the first day kind of got myself to a point of like being able to concentrate the next day I went on a long walk This is on Tuesday morning. We literally went there like Monday afternoon to, to Tuesday afternoon. It was like that quick and I went on this long walk long walk and I passed by This oak tree. This oak tree is huge. It's probably a 150-year oak tree that stands at the entrance of our camp. Right? Every single person that's ever drove onto that camp property has had to drive by that oak tree. That oak tree was there 100 years probably before the camp was even thought of. That oak tree came from an an acorn from another oak tree. And an acorn from another oak tree. And an acorn from another oak tree. Like, like... When you think about the fact that this tree has been a witness of everything that's gone on at that camp and every single person that's passed by it, it's kind of humbling. Makes you feel really small, right? Like, that tree has already outlived me and probably will outlive me. That is a healthy tree. And I thought about the great cloud of witnesses, and I thought about the fact That we live in a world that's constantly, creation itself is crying out and groaning, trying to tell us God exists and he loves and he has mercy and he wants you to see his glory and his beauty. He wants you to know him as creator and creation is screaming out and we just drive right by it. We don't even think about it. We don't think about how God's design the world we don't consider how he's designed things we don't consider what our life is about and why we're even alive and why we've existed we don't consider it because to be honest with you it's pretty heavy it's pretty heavy to kind of think through those things and the author of hebrews says look let us consider these things and when you consider them here's what you're going to want to do you're going to want to consider that it's worth it, not because you're worth it, not because you can prove your worth to God, but there were people that the reason you're here today, there were people who were the witnesses to you. And there were the people that were the witnesses to them and the witnesses to them and the witnesses to them and the witnesses to them, them. going back thousands of years that God has preserved this message for you of hope, of mercy, of love, because he wants to know you. He wants you to be his witnesses. And so he says, now, if you believe that, if you understand all those people, for me, I think of my parents and my grandparents who had faith before me, who lived their lives for Christ. If you realize that, he says, then please lay aside the sin that so easily ensnares us. Man, doesn't sin so easily ensnare you? I mean, we won't even call sin, sin today. Right, We always have an excuse or a way around it versus saying, no, that was sinful. You can do the right thing sinfully. Do you know that? Like you, you can do the right thing and have a heart of sin in doing it, and it's still sinful. People do it all the time. And God says, you've got to look at your life, evaluate your life. If you know Christ, that's the first step. If you don't know Christ, then you can't lay, lot, lay aside sin because you're so tangled up. You're in such bondage, you can't be free. But if you know Christ, Christ says, I want to come and untangle you. I want to help you run the race together. And as we run, I'm going to teach you things to lay aside. Don't pick that up. Don't. Lay it aside. You don't need that. Come on, let's, let's go a little bit further. You don't need that either. He, he's going to teach us the things that we need to lay aside because he doesn't want us to be ensnared. He wants us to run what it says here, with endurance, the race that lies before us. Listen, you have a race before you that is the same as the race I have before me, but you also have a race before you that's a little bit different than the race I have before me. It's the uniqueness of God that we all have one message, one mission in the world, but he uniquely designs that because he wants to individually communicate with each of his children, right? It's like, If your family, like this is what your family did. This is kind of who your family is. This is your mission. But it's like everybody kind of does a different thing. They've got different personalities and how they move and how they work. That's because that's how God creates us. That we're all a part of a human family. And he says, when you come to know Christ, you're all part of a spiritual family, but you're unique. There's a race that God has for you that you have to discover. And the way to discover it is to go back and accept Jesus. It's to start by faith. And then once you do that and you're holding on to that hope and you're leaning into the body of Christ, God says that the body will help you understand your race. That it's other believers that help come alongside us and say, don't pick that up. Pick this up. Don't do that. We need others to help us because we are easily ensnared. I am easily ensnared. I need other people to expose my heart so that I can run with endurance the race he lies before us. I don't know how many of you are runners. I used to be a runner. I used to be a cross-country runner in high school. Then I hurt my got ankle surgery in college, and I haven't run since, except I played basketball for a while and had to give that up because of my ankle. I'm not a runner. But those of you who are runners, this verse really can speak to you. Because you know what it's like to to run and get tired and just want to quit. You know what it's like to You start out a race, and it's really cold, right, in a morning, and you got, like, pants on and a long sleeve shirt because you got to start the race, and you're free, and you're, like, throwing off clothes, and you, if you're running a marathon, you don't even care who gets your clothes, right? Like, you're just like, I am not carrying this. I'm at mile 17, and I got, like, more to go, and you're just throwing stuff off because you're like, I got to finish. I got to finish this thing this, I've trained for this, I was, I was made for this, I'm prepared for this, and you got people lining going, yeah, and cheering you on, and people come typically, and they have signs with your name on it, and they meet you at different mile markers, and they're like, don't quit, we're sitting here eating pizza, but you keep running, like, you know, and they're, they're encouraging you to run the race, the Bible says, not only is that what the local church is supposed to be, You've got heavenly angels and heavenly people who are cheering on the faithfulness of God in you. That God wants to take you to completion and he is not going to quit on you. That should encourage you. That should like fire you up to want to put aside things and to say, God, what race do you have? And you know what? Sometimes the race, when you get deep in to a marathon or a half marathon, sometimes the race in you realize maybe I didn't train as well as I could have. I don't know know how I'm going to finish this. Maybe you throw up. Some marathon runners do some bad things in their pants when they're running. I'm just saying, you got to make the decision, and all you can do is just take the next step. There comes a point in the race when all you're trying to do is just take the next step because you're so exhausted. You're so like, I don't think I can do this. I mean, you are beat up, and sometimes... You're so done in the race that you need someone else to come out and put their arm around you, pick you up, and help you finish. I don't know if you've ever seen that video of the Olympian whose father did that for him. He was running a race, and he took off around the track, and he blew out his hamstring. He, he fell down, in, in a, and he couldn't even get up. He tried to get up. He fell again, and he fell again, and he fell again, and his dad jumps up. I mean, look it up. It's incredible. Jumps up out of the stands, pushes the security guards out of the way, and runs for his son. Runs for his son. And the security guards let him through, and he picks his son, and they finished the race together. And when they got to the end, he dropped his son over the finish line. We have a heavenly father that sent his son from the heavenly stands to earth to run with us. That is huge. No other religion presents a God like that. None. And he doesn't look at us and say, you moron, you should have stretched better. Get up. That's not what he does. He doesn't belittle. He looks at the situation and he says, we're going to finish this. You may be struggling in your faith. I am telling you, God says he is going to finish it. It's not faith in yourself. It's not faith in your faith that you need to have. It's faith that he promised he would finish your life well for you. Well doesn't mean, as we read in chapter 11, well by the worldly definition. It means well by God's definition, which is honoring him regardless of the cost. He says, look at this keeping our eyes on Jesus. He is the source and perfecter of faith. You can't have faith without him. It's all about him. It's about a relationship. It's not about rules. It's not about trying to get something. It's not about any of that. It's about a relationship, which is why relationships are so important. And if he really is the source and perfecter of true faith, then we have to seriously consider our lives. And then he says it was the joy that lay before him that he endured and despised the shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. If you're running a race and there's no finish line, good luck. Good, Good luck. We're reading in a book this week called Heaven. The men's group is doing 50 Days in Heaven. It's a devotional. We did it a few years ago. We're doing it again. And it just talks about heaven what heaven's really going to be like and thinking about heaven and what that means to have an eternal perspective, not an earthly perspective. And as men, it's a two-page devotional we read each day. And one of the examples that they were talking about in heaven was a swimmer who was trying to swim the English Channel. And she was swimming and swimming and swimming and accomplished swimmer had swam all kinds of stuff. And she is going as hard as she can. And her mother is in the boat next to her, right, cheering her on. But the fog is so thick, they can't see the shore. They kind of think they might know where they are, but the fog's been so thick, they could have drifted off course. They really don't know. But, they, but, but this is before like the communications and you know lasers and GPS. And so here they are swimming. And finally, the swimmer says, take me out. They pull her out, only to find out she was a half mile from the shore. That's it. And she said, Had I been able to see the shore, there's no doubt I would have finished. You may not be able to see the shore right now. You may not even believe that there is a shore. You're struggling with, is there really a God? Is there really a finish? Or just get all you can and go through life. I am telling you, there is a God who says he is finishing something. There's a God who said he's finished it and he has sat down at the right hand of the Father. He's like, the race is done for me. Now I'm helping you run your race to get to me. And by the way, I'm with you in the power of the Holy Spirit as you run it. It's such a beautiful picture. And he had to endure his race, the cross, which he tells us we are to pick up our cross and follow him just like he did. He despised shame. So why are we surprised if people try to shame us and try to put us down in our faith? And he says there's going to be a day when you get to sit down, but that day's not yet, and I'm running with you. It's such a beautiful picture. He goes on and he says this in verse 3. For consider him who endured such hostility. That's Jesus. Who consider, consider all the hostility he took from sinners against himself. That's you and me. I was hostile to Jesus. I was hostile to God. And he says consider that so that you won't grow weary and lose heart. He says if you committed yourself to lay aside and run this race and then it starts getting hard. Duh. Like, like, that's what he says. He's like, duh. Like, Jesus left heaven, the most perfect place to come to earth. Why? For you and me. And the reason he didn't suck you up, if you're a Christian, into heaven the moment you prayed to receive him, is because he's kept you here to run a race. Your time's not yet so he has things for you to do to glorify him, to, to, to cause the heavens to rejoice. The Bible says every time a sinner repents, heaven breaks out in rejoicing in a party. It doesn't say every time someone asks Jesus to come into their life. It says every time a sinner, you're a sinner, I'm a sinner, repents. That means says, I don't want to do what I want to do. I want to do what God does. God, all the angels are like, yes, yes. So every time you repent in your life and say, God, I'm sorry. I don't want to go that way. I want to come to you. Oh, I messed up again. I fell down. I want to come back. Every time you do that, man, heaven is like the cloud of witnesses is like, yes. Because that's what a race looks like. He looks and he says, so you won't grow weary and lose heart. In struggling against sin, you have not resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Man, that is a verse I say all the time to myself. Like, have I really shed blood for Jesus yet? Not been punched in the face, not been thrown in prison, not been beaten. Like I, I'm not sure I've even gotten really in the race. Right? I mean, I've had some people say some vile things to me and get upset with me, and I mean, I get that. But have you shed blood? Have you run a marathon and seen what those guys have to go through? He's like. Don't grow weary, even when you know that's coming. There's going to come a point when it's over. It's done. Your blood will be shed, I promise. When you come to the end of your life, and if you don't get cremated, they're actually going to suck the blood out of your body, (laughs) right? They're going to pump stuff into your body. He goes on and he says, in struggling against sin, You've not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood. And that is so critical. Because if you don't realize that what's going to happen is, you'll lose your joy. See, we live in a world and a Christianity and a Western Christianity that's been sold to the rest of the world that you can have your best life now. The Bible is clear. If you want your best life now, then hell awaits you. I didn't say that. Jesus did. That there's, there's a better life, and that's what gives us hope to go on another day. Because if, if this is the best it is, I don't want to be alive. But if there's something better, then it's worth living to honor and let people know there's something better. That's exactly what he's saying when he says this. And we live in a world where our brothers and sisters around the world right now in other countries are literally shedding their blood for Jesus. The church in Afghanistan right now is being slaughtered. Churches in the Middle East, churches in Malaysia are being slaughtered just for trying to gather together. They're being watched, they're being hunted down. They're struggling to the point of shedding blood and it declares to you and I that it's worth it. That Jesus really is who he said he is and we live in a world that's so wicked, so sinful and God still loved it that he gave his only son and they're willing to go all the way to the point of death to declare to those that kill them, you can kill the body but you cannot kill the soul and there is a God that will bring me to the finish line so go ahead. There's no greater faith than that, than to lay down your life for another. To say you can take my life because there's somebody else I'm laying it down for. It's Jesus, it's his church. It's his body. He goes on and says this, or Paul says this in Ephesians about our, our, our battle. He says, finally, be strengthened by the Lord in his vast strength. Put on the full armor of God. You're in a fight. You're in a race. So that you can stand against the tactics of the devil. For our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the world powers of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavens. He says, there is a battle going on behind the scenes that you don't even realize or see. We know this. Your body right now is fighting a battle. You don't see it. Right? You have germs on your body that you carry. That your body's constantly fighting. There are good microbes and bad microbes that are fighting on your behalf. And you've never seen it, most of you. You've not studied biology. You've not looked in a microscope. You've not taken time to watch videos about how all that works. But you just trust that that's what it is, by faith. That there is an unseen world fighting for me. I have an unseen immune system fighting for me. And every once in a while, I need a boost from something. And most of you don't ask any questions. Just give me the boost, whatever it is. Because I'm just trying to survive and get through. And God says there is a spiritual battle that's just as real as the physical battle that we're in. He goes on and he says this in Hebrews. And have you forgotten the exhortation That addresses you as sons and daughters. Pause for a minute. God has so loved you. That he's adopted you if you know Jesus. If you have said. I surrender. I'm done. Then God calls you one of his sons and daughters. Not based on you. Based on his promise. Based on his adoption. That he wants you. Not based on you. Not because you're worth it. Not because you smell good and you're pretty. That's that's not why he adopts you. He adopts you because he sees the mess you're in and he offers you something better. And he says, have you forgotten that you're sons and daughters of a father? A loving father. Let me tell you, when you're in the midst of struggle and pain and a fight, it's hard to remember that there's a loving father and it's hard to remember that you have A brother, so to speak. Jesus himself, who was God, who taught you how to fight in the family. He showed you what the life you were going to live was going to look like. He didn't hide it. He goes on and he says, My son, do not take the Lord's discipline lightly or faint when you're reproved by him. He says, sometimes you need to be disciplined, just like kids do. Right? An undisciplined child, they start believing they're God. And they start using people and hurting people. It's amazing to me how much, how so many students that come to universities and so many in our culture want to throw off discipline and then they will come to a university to study a discipline. And they will have to do everything the professor tells them to to pass and get the discipline certificate. But I'm my own man, and I'm free to do whatever I want. No, you're not. That's not how the world works. That's lunacy. But then when God disciplines us, oh, I can't believe in a God that'd be judgmental and would discipline. But you'll believe in a university and give them like hundreds of thousands of dollars. Yeah. Oh, I believe in them. Not God. No. He goes on and he says, look, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves and punishes every son he receives. He takes responsibility for his children. You're mine. And if I'm disciplining you, it's not because I'm mad at you and I'm kicking you out of the house and I want you out of here. Don't you ever. Some of you may have been raised in those kinds of environments with fathers who were horrible. People who didn't want you and didn't believe in you. That is not the God we have. We have a God that says, I want you so much that I'm willing to even offend you to show you how much I love you. And he says, for what son is there That a father does not discipline, but if you are without discipline, which everyone receives discipline, he says, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. If you don't understand the discipline it takes to run a race, to run a marathon, if you're not willing to put in the discipline because you understand how much you're loved and what Jesus has done for you and you understand how great a family you have and a father you have and you want to be disciplined to his body because you understand that the body helps you and you help them. When you realize that, it changes your whole life. It changes how you do everything. And you've got to embrace it, the writer says. He says, furthermore, we have natural fathers discipline us and we respond, we respected them. Shouldn't we submit even more to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time based on what seemed good to them. How many of you are parents in this room? Raise your hand. How often have you looked at yourself and said, what am I doing? I'll never forget when they sent the first kid home from the hospital. They're like, here, it's yours. Take it home. Uh, We'll show you how to get the car seat in the car. That's how it works, so you don't kill them on the way home. Now have a good life. Literally, are they feeding, and can you get them in a the car seat? They're yours. Welcome to parenthood. That's nuts. And that's exactly what he says here. He goes, he goes look, they're trying. They're doing what seems good to them. You got to have some grace on your mom and dad. You've got to extend some patience with them just like God has extended patience with you to realize these are sons and daughters just like you're a son and daughter. And while you have authority over them and you're to use that to point them to Christ, the Bible says don't exacerbate your children. In other words, don't abuse them. He goes on and he says, look at this, but he does it for our benefit. So your parents, sometimes they disciplined you for their own benefit. You ever done that as a parent? Just do what's easy, because discipline is just way too hard to carry out. They're screaming and throwing a fit, and you're like, you know, if I just give them a piece of candy, it'll solve it. Here, I'm done. I'm tired. He says, but no, God does it for our benefit, so that we can share in his holiness. We might become perfected. We might become like him and then others can see how great a father we have and can be invited into the family. That's what God's doing. Then he says, no discipline seems enjoyable at the time. Nope, it's painful, he says. Later on, however, it yields the fruit of peace and righteousness to those who have been trained by it. It's worth the race. You get to the finish line, you go, man, that was worth it. Ah, I mean, for me, I always thought, you know, if I ran a marathon and got to the end, I would probably say, there, I did it. I'm never doing it again. And there are people who love going and doing it again. They're weird. I'm just saying. No, I'm just kidding. Like, but probably because they understand that they need discipline in their life, and this is a way that they can discipline themselves. And he says, I want you to see that it's worth it in the long run. And the reason is because you're being made into a disciple and your job is to make disciples. This is what Jesus said after he was resurrected, as he spoke to his disciples and he was getting to go back to heaven. This is what he told his disciples. He said, the 11 disciples traveled to Galilee. So he said, hey, I'm going to be here. Come, come to me. So they went to the mountain where Jesus had directed them. When they saw him, they worshiped, but some doubted. You ever been there? You ever been like, God, I'm worshiping you right now. I'm praying right now. I'm reading my Bible right now. But man, I'm struggling. I'm struggling to trust you. I, I don't know what's going on in my life. I don't know why this is happening. I... When they saw him, they worshiped and doubted. Then Jesus came near. Remember Hebrews said, let us draw near. Why? Because God draws near to us. He's just asking you to do what he does. He's not asking you to do anything he isn't already doing in your life. They drew near, he drew near and he said to them, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. In other words, the father turned it over to the son. Here's your inheritance, son. It's all been about you since the beginning and foundation of the world. And he goes, go therefore and make disciples. The word disciple means disciplined ones. That's what the word means. It means children Because I'm the son, the father has given me authority, and I'm telling you as your older brother, I'm telling you as big, like, you need discipline. And your job is to help people see the loving discipline of a heavenly father who wants you to be something you can never be on your own. And he says, so go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. That is the symbol of being in the church. It's a symbol of declaring publicly, you go under the water, you're dead, you come out of it, new life. Baptism doesn't save you. It just declares the family can disciple me. That's what baptism does. Baptism says, I went under, I came out, now you can disciple me. I just declared you can do that. Whenever I baptize children, I always tell them that. like You you recognize that you're letting the family speak into your life now. They're going to tell you what to do because they love you. It doesn't mean you don't check in with mom and dad. But now as a family, if someone asks you to do something in the church, it's not because they're mean. They may be doing off their own whatever they thought, like we read about before. But you need need to think about what it looks like to be a disciple, a disciplined one. And man, that is a word we despise today. Discipline? I want to be free. Yes, you're free to be disciplined. How awesome is that? Everybody else is free to perish. You're free to live. Discipline. So that you can show people how great it is to live free with discipline. Can we just say that we've kind of lost that in our culture? We have a culture that just wants to be free to do whatever with zero discipline and God won't tell me what to do and nobody can tell me what to do. It's not working well. He goes on and he says, and he says, baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's the heavenly family. Baptize them into the family. And then he says, teaching them. One of the primary ways you're going to learn discipline is this. By, by being taught what God says, who he is, the whole nine yards. God, man, me, do. We talk about that. What does God say about himself? What does he say about man? What does that mean for me in light of who God is and who man is? And now, is there anything God wants me to do? He wants to take us through the process of relationship before application. That's why there's 10 chapters of this is who Jesus is. And now the author of Hebrews spends a few chapters saying, and this are some of the things you should do. And we flip that around. We're constantly doing to try to earn approval instead of doing because we know we're so loved and approved of. And he says, look at this. Teaching them to observe everything I've commanded you. Remember, Jesus wrote the whole Bible. He was the Word made flesh. So the whole Word of God, the whole Bible, is about him. I have commanded you, and remember, because you're going to need to remember this, I am with you always to the end of the age, till the end of your age, till you're done. I'm with you. And you're going to need to remember that because you're going to be in the race and it's going to be hard. And you're going to want to pick stuff up and just sit down and be like, oh, there's pizza. I'm not running anymore. I want to eat some pizza. And you're just going to go sit, right? Pick up the pizza. That looks so much better than mile 18 that I'm getting ready to come up to. God's going to come along. He's going to say, do you really want that? It's going to be hard for you to finish, and I'm going to make you finish because I love you, and I'm your father. Now you're going to be puking while you finish, and I'll be there to catch it in a bucket, but we're going to do it together. Isn't that great? That's God because he loves us. He wants us to see something bigger than ourselves and our own pleasures and what we want. And Jesus says, I'm with you in this. Hebrews goes on and says, therefore, because of this, another therefore, because of let us, let us, because strengthen your tired hands and weakened knees. My mom just had knee surgery on Wednesday. They're trying to strengthen my mom's 80-year-old weakened knees, (laughs) right? And make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be dislocated but healed instead. Pursue peace with everyone and holiness. In other words, don't run the race flipping people off. I'm better than you. Look at me. I'm awesome, right? Don't do that. Run the race being like, I don't know if I'm going to finish. Pray for me. Hey, pray for me. Like, be humble. And then he says, look, because no one without it will see the Lord. If you're not willing to pursue peace, peace doesn't always mean lay down and do nothing. Pursuing peace means sometimes stopping the rapist so he doesn't continue to rape. And that typically takes someone with force to stop it. See, we have a bad definition of peace in our culture. Peace is not just lay over and just let him do whatever to you. Peace is declaring the truth and then making the right decision in the midst of that truth. Not in vengeance, not in anger, not in frustration, but in love and care for what God's trying to do. He goes on and he says, without it, you won't see God. See, peace and holiness go hand in hand. God wants to make you into something beautiful and holy that you could never make yourself. Then he says, make sure no one falls short of the grace of God and that no root of bitterness springs up, causing trouble by it and defiling many. What does that mean? Real simple. You know how I fall short of the grace of God? I start looking around me instead of keeping my eyes on Jesus and I start looking around saying, Why do they have that? Why do they get that? Why is he faster than me? Well, at least I'm faster than that guy. I start looking around me at all the time, and then I start getting bitter. I stop looking at Jesus and running with the Holy Spirit, and now I'm just bitter and mad that I can't have what everybody else has. And why do you make me do this, God, and not him? Not her. Why do I have to be raised in that family and be hurt and abused? And those people did it. And God the whole time is saying, I'm with you. There isn't anything I haven't been through. There isn't anything I haven't walked people through. I told you the world was a mess. I told you it's a mess. I've tried to rescue you out of it. And he says, don't let that bitterness spring up. Can I just tell you? Counselors do this all the time. If you let a root of bitterness get in you, if you let that root of bitterness and vile get in you, I promise you, you will be a miserable runner. You'll be miserable. And he says, don't let that defile you as you run your race. And make sure there isn't any immoral or irreverent person like Esau, who sold his birthright in exchange for one meal. For you know that later when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected because he didn't find any opportunity for repentance, though he sought it with tears. There's a story in the Old Testament of Jacob stealing the promise from Esau. I'm not going to go into the details, but basically Jacob was the promised child when they came out of the womb. Esau's father wanted Esau to be the promised child because he liked Esau better. You can go read the story. And Esau was the oldest, so he deserves it. And a root of bitterness got in Esau because Jacob was the kind of home, at home kid, not the out in the woods. And Esau was the woods and kill things kid, right? I'm the real strong one. Jacob stole the birthright and threw Jacob God brought the 12 tribes of Israel. Through the 12 tribes of Israel, he brought Jesus. You you see the story. And he says, Esau came. He exchanged his birthright for a meal. He was so hungry. He was so tired. He just said, oh, forget it. I don't want this anymore. And God's like, don't do that. Don't do it. Later, Esau did repent to Jacob. Esau did deal with his root of bitterness to Jacob. When they met, Jacob thought he was going to kill him. Oh, and by the way, if you think it worked out real well for Jacob by stealing the birthright, it didn't. Jacob was a miserable person. God put a limp in his hip that he had to deal with his whole life. He was crippled at the end of his life. His family had to go be slaves in Egypt. And finally, at the end of his life, he finds joy right before he dies. That's the story of Jacob, the stealer of the birthright. And he looks and he says, he didn't find opportunity. Now, scholars disagree. Was Esau in heaven or wasn't he in heaven? Scholars have debated this. I don't know. Here's what I know. We should repent. (laughs) We should turn back to God. We, We shouldn't just have fake tears and I want my life back. We should just say, God, I'll take whatever life you give me. I surrender to you. And that's what Esau wasn't willing to do because he kept wanting it back. And he says, for you have not come to what could be touched, to a blazing fire, to darkness, gloom, and storm, to the blast of a trumpet and the sounds of words. Those who heard it begged that no other would be spoken to them, for they could not bear what was commanded. And even if an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned. The appearance was so terrifying that Moses said, I am terrified and trembling. This is the Old Testament. When they came out of Egypt, they have been delivered from slavery. They're standing at the mountain. God wants to have a relationship with them. And they're like, we're too terrified of you. We don't want to get close to you. And God wants them to be close but they don't want to get too close. Look at this. It says, you have not come like they did. Read that? God doesn't want us to come like that. That's not how he wanted his people to come to him, terrified and afraid and stay away from me. He wanted his people to come to them and say, God, you are real, you are holy, it's scary, but we believe you forgive. We believe you're compassionate. We believe you can can restore us and the generations. So we trust you, not ourselves, and our works. That's what he wanted. That's not how they approached him. It's how Moses approached God, though, when you read the story. But it says, instead, you see that? You have come to the city of the living God. The heavenly Jerusalem. We're coming believing that I'm not going to get some promise here. This place is messed up. I don't have a promised land here yet. I'm asking for a heavenly one that God will bring. And then he says, to myriads of angels in festive gatherings, to the assembly of the firstborn whose names have been written in heaven, to God who is the judge of all, to the spirits of righteous people made perfect. You are righteous and made perfect because of what Jesus has done for you, not because you do it all right and perfect all the time. He says, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood, which says better things than the blood of Abel. He goes back to chapter 11, right at the beginning, where Abel is slaughtered, and Abel's blood cries out for justice, and he says, that justice blood has been put on Jesus, and now he gives you adoption as sons. That's incredible. He goes on, he says, make sure that you do not reject the one who speaks. He's talking about Jesus there. For if they did not escape when they rejected him who warned them on earth, even less will we if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven. His voice shook the earth at that time, but now he has promised, Yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but heaven also. That's the end of time. This expression, yet once more, indicates the removal of what can be shaken. That's this earth. That's you and me can be shaken. That is the created thing, so that what is not shaken might remain. And the only thing that's unshakable is God himself. Everything else he can shake up. Everything. So let me ask you. Let us consider. Let us consider what Christ has done for us. Let us consider the hope that we can draw near to God in the hope that we can grab onto. Let us consider the fact that we get the opportunity to be concerned for one another and give our lives like Jesus gave his life to us. And as we do that, let us lay aside the things that keep us from doing those things and let us, right, run with endurance. It's going to take some endurance. We're going to need the body together, the race that is set before us because things are being shaken right now. Our world is being shaken. It's constantly being shaken because God is trying to see who will come to him, who will will ask him, who will draw near, who will cling to something else to hope for besides their job, their family, their kids, and everything else, and they'll cling to him. And then how, and if you know that as a child, you'll come to him. That's exactly what God lays out. It's what the writer of Hebrews is trying to get these Hebrews to see because they're trusting in Abraham, not Jesus. And he says he's coming again. This morning, we're going to celebrate communion in just a moment. There are three tables. On there is a little thing you can peel off. There's a wafer and grape juice underneath. Two layers. The reason we celebrate communion, the Lord's Supper, is it goes all the way back to the Old Testament. It represents what Jesus did as the Passover lamb of the Old Testament when God passed over their sin and spared the life of their firstborn sons. He spared life when life was deserved to be taken. To those who would just have the faith to put the blood, to trust in the blood of God, To say, your blood covers. I don't have to shed my own blood. I'm willing to, but I don't have to because you've shed for me. That's what communion goes all the way back thousands of years to represent. And then it goes to the moment when Jesus celebrated Passover with his disciples. And he was celebrating the last Passover with them before he was going to be arrested, tried, beaten, and crucified. To die in your place and in my place. And he's He he wanted to eat that last meal with them. And then he tells us in Revelation that he's going to eat that meal with us again in chapter 19 of Revelation. Someday we're gonna eat this meal with him. This is just a symbol of the meal. The meal is actually much bigger if you look at the Passover Seder meal. This is just a memory, a remembrance of that meal that he celebrated all the way back then. He celebrated with his disciples and that we are gonna celebrate with him one day when he shakes everything out and we're with him at his banquet table. That's what communion and the Lord's Supper represents. It represents everything, his body, his blood, everything he gave so that we could be his sons and daughters. In 1 Corinthians 11, this is what God says about this moment. It's what he says about the let us. So how do we let us? Remember, that's plural, by the way. It's not let you and me. It's let us. We do it together. Receive communion. He says, For I received from the Lord, Paul says, what I also passed on to you the night when he, Jesus, was betrayed. The Lord Jesus took bread. He gave thanks. He gave thanks knowing that he was getting ready to die on a cross and be beaten. Think about that for a minute. God, I'm going to eat this meal that represents that I'm the Passover lamb with my disciples, representing that I am, I, I'm going to have to endure the cross, that there, there, there's a race before me that I'm going to finish. And I'm going to eat this with them, and so they can understand that it's my body that's broken for them. And that's what he says. He broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Anytime you break bread, anytime you take a drink, we should be remembering and considering that it's Jesus who gives us our sustenance in life, not that bread, not that drink. It's him. I learned that from the Quakers, by the way. They taught me that every time you eat a meal should be a time to give thanks and remember that God is the one who provides. Then he says, in the same way, after the supper, he took the cup cup of judgment. This cup is the new covenant established by my blood. Do this as as do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, look at what it says, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. You're proclaiming the fact that I have to die to myself because I know he's coming back. That I lay down my life like he laid down his as the representation because I know that's what he asks us to do. And I know I can keep coming back and drawing near and holding on to the hope and to do it in the body of Christ because this is what he gave us to remember him and remember his promises. That is such a beautiful thing. And he goes on and he says, therefore, Paul says, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in unworthy manner will be guilty of sin against the body and the blood of the Lord. So a man should examine himself. In this way, he should eat the bread and drink the cup. For whoever eats and drinks without recognizing the body, the body of Jesus and the body of Christ. If they do that, they eat and drink judgment on themselves. Now, does that mean they're cursed forever? No, it just means you're doing something in a way God doesn't want you to do it. Don't do it. He goes on, he says, This is why many are sick and ill among you and many have fallen asleep. It has consequences. When you don't take Jesus seriously, there are consequences. If we are properly evaluating ourselves, we would not be judged. Look at this. But when we are judged, we are disciplined. Paul says, by the Lord. So that we may not be condemned with the world. You may feel very judged right now. You may feel like you've sinned and you've done something God could never forgive. You, you may feel like I am not worthy of a relationship with God. Can I just tell you, he says right here that the reason you feel that way is because he wants you to know that you can draw near, you can grab onto the hope, you can be concerned, you can lay a slide, you can run with endurance. And then he goes on to say this, my favorite part. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us hold on to grace. By it, we may serve God acceptedly with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Communion is the symbol of us holding on to God's grace. He did something for us we don't deserve. It's a gift that's given to us that we don't deserve. It's his son that was provided for us. Can I just tell you, if you know Jesus Christ, if you have said, God, I want to be yours and I want to be a part of your body, I want to be connected to your people, if you've done that, the communion's for you. It's for you to evaluate your heart. It's for you to evaluate, is there any bitterness? Is there anything in me? And to take that and draw near to God. It's not for you to feel unworthy of God. We're supposed to go to our fathers when we're hurting. We're supposed to go to our earthly fathers to ask them to forgive us. We're supposed to go to the father and say, help. That's communion. If you're doing really well, then give thanks. Go take communion and be like, God, thank you. (laughs) Thank you for how you've forgiven me, what you've done. And I don't think there's anything in my life, but I'm willing to have you tell me after I leave this place, there's something I need to deal with. That's communion. Communion. If you don't know Jesus, then, then don't eat with the family. But just know you can become a part of the family in an instant. All it is is faith saying, Jesus, I believe that you are who you say you are, that it was your blood that shed. I don't have to shed my own. Your body was shed. And I trust that this was the plan of salvation from the beginning of the earth that points to all things. And so I'm gonna surrender to you in this moment, ask you to come in to cleanse me and forgive me, and I'm going to take my first communion, my first supper with you. You can do that in this moment. I'm gonna pray, and after I pray, we just have people get up. You go to whatever table you want to go to. You can pray by yourself. You can pray with someone else. You can ask someone to pray for you. But I'm going to encourage you to examine yourself for a moment. And after you examine yourself, I'm going to encourage you to go give thanks, to draw near to God, to hold on to him, to go with the others of the church, to lay aside what you're carrying right now, to run the race And hold on to the grace of God that you don't deserve. But he keeps offering to us freely. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. Lord, I thank you for the gift that you gave of the Lord's Supper. That from the beginning of time, you've wanted to commune with your people. In the Garden of Eden, you provided supper through the trees and everything that grew Everything was good. Everything was perfect. And we decided like Esau that we just wanted that thing we weren't supposed to have. And it cursed all of us. And we have a cancerous spiritual DNA that is killing us. But I thank you that you say that we can come back to you. We can draw near to you and hope that you will save us one day. And that in surrendering to you, we can die to our old self and be born again, the Bible says, Spiritually. So Lord, if there's anyone here, anyone listening online who has not had that moment with you where they have surrendered to you and said, I'm done. I just, I wanna know this God who, who is amazing. I wanna know this heavenly family of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I wanna I want draw near. I want some hope in my life. Lord, I pray today would be the day they surrender to you. And for those of us who are believers, I pray that we would examine our hearts as Paul asks. As the writer of Hebrews asked, we'd examine our heart, we'd confess it to you, and we would go to communion knowing that you give us grace and that we can hold on to it. And Father, if there's something that we're not willing to deal with yet, if there's something that we're still holding on to, I pray that we would grab another believer to pray for us. We'd grab someone to help us pray through that so that we could fully fellowship with you. And maybe we don't take communion. They don't take communion right now because they, they want to deal with it. I think you look down from heaven grateful for that. So Lord, we ask you in your power of your Holy Spirit to speak to our hearts in this moment. Let us, let us right now draw near to you. Grab onto the hope. Be concerned for one another. Lay aside the sin. Run the race and hold on to your grace. In your name, amen.